I consider my guest today to be something of a collaboration evangelist, and God knows we need one. Seems to me that going way back to kindergarten, playing nicely in the sandbox with others has been a rare attribute to find. And then those small people in kindergarten become full-on grown-ups. And then you have, just like in the sandbox, you got the haves, the ones with the shiny dump trucks, and the have-nots, the folks with the broken shovels. The whole sharing thing gets to be harder and harder as you age and the world gets more complex and polarized. We get territorial and competitive. We think whoever has the most toys wins. Our current grown-up strategy is really not working very well for us today, is it? Competition in the public sector, abuse of power in the private sector with a real disregard for the values we all have in common. And by the way, we have lots of them and we somehow seem to lose sight of that. My guest today is a firm believer that the only way to solve society's biggest problems is through collaboration. Her focus is not only on nonprofits working together, but on the public and private sector jumping into that sandbox together and sharing their toys. She speaks with eloquence and passion about the superpowers of each sector and how big issues like affordable housing, economic mobility, and cultural vibrancy can only be tackled when those superpowers are combined. She also offers this strategy as an antidote for the lack of trust we are seeing in the public sector. Settle in for a terrific conversation. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Chelsea Peters is the Deputy Director and Chief Strategy Officer of the Walton Family Foundation. As I mentioned, she is all about building collaborative, performance-driven organizations that are focused on tackling the biggest issues we face as a society. Prior to her role with the Walton Family Foundation, Chelsea led strategy and operations at UNICEF USA. From partnering with family-led board to leading strategy design and implementation, Chelsea works across programs, partners, and grantees to accelerate impact around the foundation's priorities, providing access to quality K-12 education for all, protecting our most vital resource, water, and advancing the quality of life in the foundation's home region of Northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Chelsea is also a founding member of CHIEF, private network connecting C-suite women leaders. She was named an Aspen Ideas Fellow, and she joined the Executive Committee of Working Nation. She is a diehard New Yorker with a global outlook, and she has really, like, the most adorable puppy on the planet, <laughs> whose name is Sunny, who might actually be on her lap right now. Chelsea, I'm really glad you're here. Thanks, Joan, for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, if the dog barks, you'll know that Sunny is in the house. <laughs> There's no better guest than Sunny. Yeah, that is really true. I wish you all could see her. Let's start with a definition of terms. Public equals X, private equals Y. Help listeners solve for X and Y. 
Great. And and Joan, before we begin, I do want to just say, I've been listening to your podcast for so many years now. And to be on this side of the mic, it really is incredible. And I'm excited to you know be in this sandbox with you, and I'm happy to share my toys. So overall, the private sector um, and the public sector, I think it's a really smart question to just talk through what are the basic do- definitions. And starting with the public sector, it really is part of the economy that is owned, managed, run by the government and government bodies that really it's goods and services that are for the public. So think about infrastructure, public transportation, public education, public health care, law enforcement, military, services that are provided to the public that benefit the public that are paid by the taxpayer. Okay. The private sector um, is part of the economy, economy that is run by individuals or private corporations. Think small and large businesses that are really intended to earn a profit for the owners of the enterprise and to create shareholder value. And then I think the third that you didn't uh, necessarily mention, but I think it's important to call out for this conversation is the philanthropic sector, the nonprofit sector, which is really comprised of charitable organizations that are not driven by profit, but are driven by social good, right? They're organizations that are dedicated to societal issues with donations or funds really primarily allocated to a cause. Okay. Public, private, philanthropic. Right. So we need X, Y, and I guess I need Z. Z. Right. Okay. So let's take them one at a time. From your perspective, how would you define the sort of the superpowers and the kryptonite of each of these sectors? Because if you actually are going to work together, you actually need to be really clear about what the strengths are and what the weaknesses are and and presumably figure out a way for those to complement one another. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important, again, to your point, call out what we're good at but we're not. So we can capitalize on the strengths of each sector and yield the greatest value for society. So the public sector, I think the pro is scale and reachability. I think a really good example of that is that 90% of students go to public school. So you can't change anything in education without the public education system being part of the change, considering that that is where most of the kids are getting their education. I think the con for the public sector is, you know, you rarely hear government synonymous with agility. It can be slow, it can be rigid, and you can often have red tape, which leads to the... I would also say um, innovation is probably not a word that you would necessarily align with the public sector. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing more innovative initiatives coming out of the public sector, but right. I think primarily, typically people think of innovation really more associated with the private sector, which I think absolutely going to your question is a pro for the private sector, right? The private sector can be bold, nimble, agile can take risks, can be more innovative, kind of really focus on catalytic change through catalytic funding. And a good example of that is how the private sector really stepped up during the pandemic to really Mm -hmm. meet societal needs in a way that maybe government, you know, was taking a little slower or was really kind of thinking about orchestrating this larger plan in the interim, in the short term, the private sector is really to step up and in where and when needed. I think the con of the private sector can be that there could be mixed incentives, right? Everyone is, when you're thinking about shareholder value, you're not necessarily thinking of societal value. And I think that can lead to some complication itself. I feel a matrix coming on. (laughs) You know, I love a good matrix. Okay. So the philanthropic sector, pluses and delta. Yeah. I mean, again, the philanthropic sector overall, similar to the private sector, can be nimble, can be catalytic, can take risks. I think overall, what we see at the Walton Family Foundation is really the power of the philanthropic sector being a convener, 
really bringing diverse perspectives, ideas to the table, and really ensuring that people are not necessarily just focusing on building common ground, but building common solutions, right? Pulling together the stakeholders who are on the ground, rolling up their sleeves, doing the work, and focusing on shared outcomes. And I think that's really the role of the philanthropic sector in pulling the public and private sector and nonprofit sectors together to achieve big change and solve the big problems of today. Um, again, the con can be around mixed incentives, really how the organizations are, are trying to achieve a long-term approach to impact, really long-term goals, but also filling immediate needs. And, and we're seeing that in different philanthropic organizations taking a different approach to impact and how they're kind of like meeting the, the moment while also ensuring that we're focusing on really the sustainable outcomes that we know takes time. So I'm hearing a question from listeners for a clarification on that that third bucket, which is the philanthropic sector. Are, are we generally talking about funders in that bucket? No, and nonprofit organizations. Yeah, I mean, I might push back on you a little bit, Chelsea, in the sense that on the nonprofit side, like maybe you'll disagree with me. I think that nonprofits tend actually to be surprisingly risk-averse, actually. I think that they have uh, boards that see themselves as fiduciaries. They don't have the kind of generative conversations that lead to innovation, piloting, risk-taking, and that that was actually a brand new muscle that nonprofits flexed during the pandemic that I hope they hang on to. But I, I just, I wanted to push back ever so gently and say that I generally find that nonprofits that are in the business of changing things are actually surprisingly risk-averse, largely because of the power dynamics with boards, I think. Yeah, let's let's talk about then how we're defining risk, right? Yeah, because okay. Ultimately, yes, nonprofits, any organization is really guided by principles, by values, by tenants that hold an organization intact and ensure that collectively the organization as whole is achieving specific outcomes that are set by the shareholders or stakeholders involved. I think as it relates to risk, I think change or shifting gears or changing a perspective to some could be perceived as risky. For instance, you know, a nonprofit organization, like take UNICEF, take UNICEF USA, and thinking about shifting fundraising goals and imperatives or even campaigns and messaging around Ukraine versus other emergencies that are ongoing and that are happening, say, in sub-Saharan Africa. We know there's a drought. We know that there are immediate need there. But that was a decision to shift gears and put out public messaging about another emergency that, of course, was emerging and where there was critical need. You could say that's a risk. Possibly that could drop or that could increase fundraising. But I think it's just a different perspective. Is risk really being associated with your inclination to change gears, shift gears based on the information that you're gleaning or the insights that you are really digesting to inform decision-making? Okay, so I buy that. And I think that the distinction is really important. The idea that I think you posit here is that the uh, that nonprofit organizations are closer to the ground, have a better understanding for trends in a particular sector, and as such can make shifts and should make shifts that align with what they are learning about the sector because they are on the ground doing the work. And I, it's a funny thing, I would just also say that there's lots of nonprofit organizations that do a lot of things that would be defined as risky. I think that actually my perspective of what risk is is probably, I probably have a higher tolerance for it than most. 
Uh, Joan, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think overall, absolutely. I mean, we know at the Walton Family Foundation, the, an abiding belief and a fundamental that underpins all of our work is the belief that people who are closest to the problems are closest to the solutions. So to the point you just made about nonprofits being the stakeholders on the ground, understanding the community needs, understanding the solutions that could really meet the desires or the needs of the majority or the entire community, absolutely, we're designing our strategies to ensure that we are listening to, we are learning from, we are working collaboratively with those who are on the ground, whether that is thinking about education and thinking about really how we're ensuring that there is quality education for all. We're sitting down meeting with teachers, with parents, with with youth to understand what that looks like for them and how we can ensure that the models that we're redesigning in this really catalytic moment for education because of the pandemic and its exposure of where there are significant gaps in our system, you know, we're doing that. If we're thinking about sustainable agriculture, we're making sure that we're talking to the farmers. So I think to your point on nonprofits being close. Absolutely. It's why I think there are so many organizations who are really thinking about the power of local and how to really weave in nonprofits into the decision-making across the board. So talk about this sort of public-private kind of collaboration. And I'm going to ask you to sort of talk about it at the 35,000-foot level and kind of philosophically, how does it work? Then my follow-up question will be bring it to life for us with a kind of a specific example that illustrates to you what what you think the power of the public-private partnership can look like in reality. Absolutely. So 35,000 foot level, I think, you know, Aristotle, you know, asked the question of how can the whole be greater than the sum of its parts? And I think overall, we see that in action every day of the importance of working together to drive societal change, to build a regenerative society. I think for me, really, you know, tactically, I learned that from my my mom, my dad, but really my dad, who is a big sports fanatic and really through sports, really taught my brother and my sister and I the power of teamwork, the notion of stronger together, right? I played division one lacrosse at Bucknell University and I saw that day in and day out on and off the field, right? You can have the best goalie in the world, but if you don't have people, you know, or, you know, players scoring points and putting points on the board, you're never going to win the championship. So you need to really think about partnership as playing to respective strengths, ensuring that you're leveraging the unique characteristics of each stakeholder to really drive towards shared goals, shared outcomes. And I think overall, we have seen time and time again, that collaboration, that partnership, it leads to more effective and long-term social change. I think there's so many different examples that can pull that to light. Um, But I think, again, macro level, I think we're all seeing that the problems of today, they are too big, they are too complicated, too interconnected to solve alone. No one sector, organization, or person can really tackle the societal or environmental challenges like the impacts of climate change on our water resources, or again, education or healthcare or infrastructure, right? We need an all hands on deck approach, which is gonna require collaboration uh, through and through. So to kind of give an example of what that looks like, an example that I think points to not just the strength of having more capital and resources being pulled together, but also how private-public partnerships can also lead to an acceleration of impact um, as it relates to time, right? You can go further and you can go further faster. So a problem that we had in Northwest Arkansas 
was really a, a great problem to have. Our Northwest Arkansas region, which is the focus of our home region program, is really has experienced unbelievable exponential growth as a region in the past 25 years. Population. We, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We've doubled okay. our population in the past yeah. 20 years. With that, it comes, you know, the responsibility and accountability in us is one, how do we ensure that with a growing population, one, we're, we're continuing to attract talent and people to the region while also ensuring that current residents feel like we're building a community that they still want to be a part of and that hmm. they still feel ownership of and that there is livability in the region. And so to do that, the Walton Family Foundation, we really took a look at really community design. How are we designing our infrastructure, creating mobility, connection points across the different towns, municipalities to create a regional culture and connection that will allow for and stimulate local growth and economic growth? What we did is we kind of the centerpiece for all of this was the Razorback Regional Greenway, which is a paved trail that links major cities of Northwest Arkansas region. And uh, kind of like for, for those of us from the Northeast, it's like a like a big old high line. It's like a big old highline that connects uh, different municipalities, different groups. And, and before the Walton Family Foundation, before we kind of came into play, the different um, towns were essentially designing their own trails and networks and paveways. And so we were like, let's think bigger. Let's think bolder. What if we actually create a regional strategy, a regional design? And so you're not just working in a silo, but we're actually pulling all of you together around the same table. And we're actually creating a network, a trail network that, again, the trail system would connect local towns to each other through bike paths, through walking paths, through essentially a green way that would lead to people being able to commute to different towns, people looking to achieve a healthier lifestyle by how they're commuting and how they're getting to work, economic development, new businesses popping up along the corridor and existing businesses also, you know, experiencing greater foot traffic. So ultimately we funded $15 million to kind of create this design and framework that funding was then supported by the state and the federal government. They each matched our dollars. So $15 million turned into $45 million, which then took a project that was going to take ultimately 25 years, brought it down to a five-year timeline. And it's it's incredible. It's I think 2017 alone, the Northwest Arkansas, the trail system generated about $137 million in economic benefits to the region. Again, through tourism, through events, through goods and services, because now the regions, the towns, the communities were connected. It's a great story, actually. And hats off. Who was at the table? You said we brought all, all the players came to the table. So who were the players at the table? Right? Yeah. Because they were starting to, so, so first of all, you got the situation where people are doing their own thing, right? And you want to put up a whole bunch of people at the table who are doing their own thing to do something all together, right? And so one question is, how do you get them to stop doing their own thing and decide to build one big thing in the sandbox? Is that, a, is that the power of the Walton name and money? Like, talk about that. And then who was at the table when you actually started to think about that? And truly, this is a ex- great, not only is it a, is collaboration a philosophical thing, but like the Greenway is a whole greater than the sum of its parts. Kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, for sure. Starting on your first question, ultimately, how do we bring people to the table who was at the table? Why did they want to come to the table? I mean, those right. were the basic questions that we asked ourselves. And what did the table look like? And how, and what kind of, was it a nice, no, good, keep going. 
Um, picture people with their sleeves rolled up over a giant map, right? Thinking yeah. about how we can create the best trail system that would connect the towns that would, again, kind of revitalize the region through connectivity and through an alternative, you know, mobility. Like, right, we weren't necessarily thinking about how we could cater to this, they call it, you know, the spandex crew, right? It wasn't going to be bikers who, uh, it was going to be people who were looking to commute. And and really, as we're thinking about affordable housing and as, as the region is growing, people are getting pushed, you know, further out in their region, how can we ensure that they still have access, right? Access to the services, access to goods, access to the community in a way that they feel like they're part of the community. So who was at the table? It looked like everyone from, again, local uh, design excellence stakeholders as it relates to architects, as it relates to local um, legislators, businessmen, businesswomen, entrepreneurs. Really, it was a an incredible compilation of different stakeholders from different industries all coming together to lift up ideas around how to create an inclusive network that would allow for growth in many different industries across the region. As it relates to why they showed up and why they didn't just, you know, do their own plans, I think you can clearly make the case that, you know, a siloed approach can only get you so far, right? right? Kind of thinking bigger and bolder and connected and leveraging and pooling resources, you can then amplify that impact, which then again, as I was saying earlier, really was our tool or a lever that we were able to pull to generate and to really incentivize and attract federal funding, which was matched the philanthropic funding that we initially put down to really kind of test whether or not this idea would work. So it sounds like it was a very big table. <laughs> That's one thing we know table. for sure. It was a very big and it was table. a round table. We took uh, it out uh, from King Arthur and we but, made sure that everyone had not just a seat at the table, but everyone had a microphone at the table. And I think for us at the Walton Family Foundation, if they didn't have a mic, we would pass up ours and we would give it to them. We wanted to make go. sure everyone was involved. It's a really good story. So it's a big table, and who's in charge of corralling the voices? Who's the? It sounds like an incredible orchestra of entities, public and private. Love it, got it. Who's the orchestra conductor at the at that table? Yeah, I think ultimately, in order to create and to fulfill the vision of the home region, which is to create an inclusive community. We needed everyone to feel like they were owners, that they were yep. stakeholders, that they were part of not just designing the solution, but part of executing on the vision and executing towards achieving, you know, desired outcomes, desired goals. Again, we were the convener at first to bring together the multiple stakeholders, but then really the Northwest Arkansas Council, which is, you know, the regional lead that really ensures that the the public that you know the residents that the businessmen and women that the entrepreneurs the local the large businesses the many fortune 500 companies that reside in northwest arkansas that they all were part of contributing to this vision was really landed on the northwest arkansas council and their partners on the ground uh, which which made sense, right? We want to make sure that this is not just a, a one-time initiative, but this is an initiative that carries on, that we build on, and that we obviously use to scale other innovations and other projects with a similar type model. It also sounds like when you have 
people with different, to stay with the orchestra model for a moment, right? There are probably some meetings where the architects are driving the conversation, right? Or the flute section or what, it, I mean, so my guess is that there are people in the foreground and people in the background at different conversations that lead to this kind of collaborative outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, because Northwest Arkansas is really be becoming one of the most attractive places to live in the country. We're very intentional about how we're designing and who is designing the space in which, you know, residents are, reside and that, you know, businesses are really kind of like putting down their roots. And so you can say to your, to your framing, like local architects, but it's really a design excellence, you know, programmers, engineers, people who are on the ground, who know the community, who know the natural flows of the community, who are really designing, you know, what, what does our infrastructure look like and what is really needed in order to support growth in a way that makes sense for the community, makes sense for the culture, and I think the overall, the desire of, of the region as a whole. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. Uh, we are having a conversation about public-private partnerships. It's really a conversation about solving society's biggest problems and that we actually can't do it as independent agents, that if we have to make something really fabulous in the sandbox, we're actually going to have to share our toys. And we are talking with Chelsea Peters, who is the deputy director and the chief strategy officer at the Walton Family Foundation. And she is what I like to call a collaboration evangelist. Her work really is about building collaborative, performance-driven organizations focused on tackling the biggest issues we face as a society. So your example is a good one, and I really feel that for listeners, really brought the idea of this to life. Talk a little bit about what are the obstacles? What thwarts collaboration? I think if you know the adage, right, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think inherent in collaboration is a is this necessity to come together, to sit down around, you know, quote unquote, around the table and align on expectations, align on goals, align on when, why, where, how things happen that really creates change that the collective wants to see. And that takes time. That takes time. It takes coordination and it takes really good leadership. And so I think overall, again, sinking on that pace of change and aligning incentives, motivations, and again, overarching goals and kind of how people want to come together. That is something that inherently, it's not, it's not an obstacle you can't overcome, but I think it's a lot of a reason why a lot of people shy away from it. You know, I need to do this quickly. Let me just go at it. But I think, again, we all know that partnership collaboration leads to better outcomes. Diverse thinking, diverse ideas coming together to problem solve leads to better outcomes. So I think we just need to think of more efficient ways to do that versus not doing it. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, I big, think that's true, Chelsea. I do yeah. think that that's true. And I, I believe we understand that conceptually, mm -hmm. but there's issues of power and ego, aren't there? Right? It's like, I have a big, shiny dump truck. Why do I have to share my toys with that kid who has a broken shovel? 
Yeah, I, I think if you're thinking about whether or not things are good for you and you want to do it your way, I really think those those days are over, right? If you're really looking to drive big change, if you're looking to drive systemic change. And the reason, again, kind of comes back to the original point, which is we cannot go at it alone. No one sector or organization is really going to be able to, to tackle the things that we're seeing. And, and, and I we need to overcome that kind of philosophy and and really move towards coming together as social beings, right? Being social is in our DNA. We need to lean on that natural instinct to really provide greater value to society in a way that lifts all boats and promotes, you know, inclusive growth and sustainable solutions. I think the other um, big point, Joan, that I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't hit on is another big obstacle that we're seeing in today's society is really distrust has become the default in American society, right? Trust is a big issue. And that is for a host of reasons, but really a polarized society with the things that we've all faced collectively together over the course of the past few years has led to people really shying away from having the hard conversations. And I really see that as one of the biggest hurdles that we all as leaders need to immediately overcome and and combat in order to, again, build the regenerative society or build a society that we all want to be a part of. You know, the Edelman Trust Barometer came out to show us uh, this past year that two-thirds of Americans avoid conversation or civil debate with someone that might have an opposing view. That to me is something that we should all should be talking about because we need to start to build trust because trust is the lowest common denominator. It is the glue that connects our society. It is the glue um, to even interpersonal relationships to really starting a dialogue that is really needed to, again, get to the heart of the work that needs to be done. The trust piece seems to me, and I wonder if you see this, amplified by a multi-generational workforce where young people entering the workforce have very little experience with institutions they should trust. I interviewed a journalist from Time magazine who talked about particularly millennials. When you think about a vast array of issues that they had faced from the time they were teenagers to the time they entered their 20s where institutions absolutely failed them. And, and this journalist talked about how that has led to movements like Black Lives Matter and a different way of organizing because why should we do it that other way? Because it wasn't really working before. So I think that's an, another component in the sort of the soup of distrust. Absolutely. And I think a there's so many ingredients that make up that soup, right? I think it's why when we think about how the soup is going to taste a little better, we really need to be keeping our ear to the ground to how people, what people want to see, right? What what people want to understand or know for them to be more open-minded and willing to share ideas, lift ideas, and come together in a way that is going to drive meaningful change. And, and, and Joan, you hit on the point of multiple generations kind of coming together and being a part of the workforce. It's why at Walton, we just, 
really wanted to really understand our youth and what they were thinking about collaboration, what they what they want to see in our leaders that will give them a roadmap for how to collaborate effectively, right? Yeah. There's a lot of ineffective collaboration out there. And collaboration is also a buzzword, right? I've been to so many conferences over the course of this fall and collaboration was a main theme, but I think what we need to do more of and what we need to do better is we really need to showcase how collaboration leads to outcomes. We need to be talking about the change that we've achieved or what we're looking to achieve because we're able to collaborate. And that's what Gen Z is looking for, right? So when we did our interviews and our our surveys to really get a pulse check on what is our youth thinking about? What are our futurists? What do they want to see in the future? It was really about, you know, breaking down this hierarchical approach and really kind of having more of a bottoms up understanding of how to drive change. Again, hitting on that point of local, right? Local matters. I think also they are not seeing leaders in our country that are reinforcing the basic tenets or values that are necessary for effective collaboration. And so what they're doing is they're not looking to leaders. They're actually just showing how you can, they can do it themselves. And they're coming together and pulling together their own counterparts and their peer groups to, to drive them the change that they want to see. They're not waiting for other generations to step up and in. They're doing it themselves. We should be paying a lot of attention to that, in fact. And I, I think the other thing is out, outcomes are a piece of it, absolutely. But when I think about what thwarts working in collaboration, there's a piece of me that says that we don't spotlight enough the agency that comes to individuals when collaboration works. There is an assumption, maybe, you know, I'm not Gen Z and haven't been Gen Z for a long time, but... There's a sense of collaboration means I'm going to lose my agency. And to reframe collaboration in such a way that it is actually, even anecdotally or culturally, that collaboration actually increases the agency a person has. And I, I, I don't know, I've just been thinking a lot about it as it relates to sort of people's really need to understand that their voice matters. They need to understand that they matter and that this is actually so much a part of that. And it, And that when you're tackling society's biggest problems, everybody has a point of view and it is their truth, right? And so I just feel like there's something about lifting up, whether that's anecdotally or in a data-driven way, the agency that people feel when they collaborate so that we actually bust the myth that you lose it if if you do. Completely agree with that. And I think you just hit on the point, bust the myth, because it is a myth. Right. And I think a good example is think about what happened or what is happening right now in education in our country. Right. Going to kind of going back to, you know, innovation was born out of necessity as it relates to the impact that the pandemic had on our education system. Right. March 2020, immediately overnight, 55 million kids were had their education disrupted. And of that 55 million, 16 million, so 30% didn't have access to education because they didn't have access to either broadband, internet, or they didn't have access to a device. And of that 16 million, 6 million didn't have access to either. And that clearly required one, not just an all hands on deck approach as it relates to nonprofits and the public sector and Congress coming together through the HEROES Act to fund that, but private businesses, you know, handing out iPads and devices that people could get access to that. So it, that's a, an example of that. But also, 
really forced all different stakeholders to, again, listen to the youth, listen to parents and say, what do you need to ensure that remote learning is, is happening in your household or happening wherever you may be? Giving the agency to the stakeholders who are feeling the problem the most by communicating, by being a part of problem solving, because there was an open communication, there was an open dialogue between large funders, small funders, nonprofits, government agencies, talking to a parent was beautiful. And I think a really good example of that, there's been just with one fund that we support alone, the Vela Fund, it, there, there have been 450 new models of education that have been born in the past two years that have been spearheaded and have been you know, ideas that have been, been turned into real products or platforms all spearheaded by parents. And so when you think about the agency that you have as it relates to one, leveraging technology and how now the world is online, so you have great, greater access to be an agent of change. Um, but also I think more and more organizations and again, companies are really tuning in to local and to those who are closest to the problem. And therefore everyone has, you know, uh, a point in in helping to shape what the, what the decision or what the outcomes or solutions look like. We're almost out of time, and I I want uh, to uh, have you put yourself in the shoes of nonprofit leaders who are listening, and what is it you think they need to hear to be a part of this movement towards collaboration and partnership? Or what do you think they need to do differently? Yeah, I would say... It's clear that the impact movement is picking up speed and it's picking up attention, right? More than ever, you're hearing about companies who are building out their ESG portfolios. So companies who are now focusing more on how to provide social value. Yes. Um, More than ever, you're seeing more impact investment strategies that are aligning with the nonprofit sector. So I would say to nonprofit leads, well, the world seems to be tuning in to the incredibly powerful sector of nonprofits and philanthropy. The nonprofit and philanthropic sector really need to be tuning in to what private sector is doing. Yes. Um, so that we can better, again, think about who, in, you know, so to any nonprofit leader listening out there, think about who is in the private sector, who is focusing on some of the same causes or issues that you also care about? How can you open up a conversation or a dialogue to align on goals? And you might have different ways of achieving that, different level levers to pull, whether that's you know funding or resources or how you might be approaching the issue, but you still are approaching the issue collectively together. And I think having the nonprofit sector really better understand the private sector and how the capital is flowing, I would say is a really good starting point. And I would say the second thing is knowing that there is more attention on how both for-profit nonprofits are really providing societal benefit and societal good, really building capacity, right? We need to make sure that we are investing in the leaders and in the workforce that are that are really guiding and leading the way in tackling the issues that we know are most critical to ensuring that everyone's country has access to the basics in life. And so really the capacity building and leadership piece, I think is something that should not, should be a priority. Yeah. I think both of those are really important messages and takeaways for listeners. 
The first one is understand the private sector and recognize that that their val they are be they have already begun to think differently about how they operate in this society. Actually, I was just at a, a mentor event at my alma mater where we were talking about kids interviewing prospective employers about what their company values are and making sure that they align properly and that a company should have a good answer to that question. And I believe that it's a really good wake-up call for the nonprofit sector that often just simply looks at the private sector as a paycheck. Will you sponsor my event? That if I have a meeting with a company and I don't walk away with money, I have not had a good day at the office. And it is time for us to start thinking much more generatively about what's possible. And part of what you're also saying, I think, Chelsea, is to, to nonprofit leaders, evolve. And if you don't, that's at your own peril, right? Because this train is actually leaving the station. Exactly. And the second piece that, just to amplify, is... Who leads organizations that collaborate? And when when we interview, and you know, I I coach CEOs for a living, but I don't know that 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 is you know, there's not a question in the interview process from the search firm that says, so when you were in kindergarten, what kind of kid were you in the sandbox? We want to know whether they've closed a gift. We want to know all these tactical things, but. Do we, do we understand that they have a value that says we're in this together, that this, the, the problem we're attempting to solve, whatever it might be, is so much bigger than any money I could actually raise for this particular organization? Don't you also think, Chelsea, that those kinds of conversations fuel people? Like these generative conversations, they're really exciting. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think everyone gets energy out of thinking bigger and better and bolder and kind of coloring outside the lines. Again, right. we're in this really unique moment right now where, you know, people are working from home instead of the office. You know, people are thinking about shifting their careers and prioritizing quality of life. Over, Everyone's kind of like reestablishing their own norms. And I think with that comes opportunity to think kind of with a blank slate of, of paper, how, what are the values that are guiding your personal and professional life and what possibilities or what are, what are the, the dreams or the aspirations or what does the ideal look like and how do we get there? And I think that we really can achieve great progress if we all put our minds and ideas and our, you know, thinking together to really build something better and bigger. Yeah. And if you sit around a table with a diverse group of people, you're inevitably going to say at some point during that conversation, I had not thought of it that way before. Right. right. I had not thought of it that way before. And to me, that's one of the most powerful things that you can come away from any conversation feeling. I just, I had not thought of it that way before. That's really interesting. And it opens up my eyes and my mind and gets me thinking differently. And this is why diversity is so important. It's why collaboration is so important because exactly. everybody's bringing something to that big round table. Sam Walton said a quote that I think kind of captures this overall sentiment, which is that, you know, great ideas can come from anywhere. You just need to know to look and to listen for them. So I think we're going to leave it there, except to say that um, you quoted Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> and I will tell you that Socrates, the father of ethics, I don't have a quote, but I can tell you that what, what ethics actually means is to advocate for the good. 
Mm. And I, I think that's what we're we're all in the business of doing. And I really enjoyed having you evangelize about that power that comes with working with others. And I really, I think so many organizations are so indebted to the Walton Family Foundation for its strategic thinking and its its values and what it brings to the philanthropic sector. So thank you for the role that you play in all of that. Yeah, of course, Ed, Joan, Ed, thank you for that. But I will say it's our grantees. It's the people who are actually doing the work. We're just supporting and lifting them up. Um, but it's a privilege to be, of course, a part of the foundation and getting to work with so many diverse and brilliant minds who really care about passing down a better future to the next generation. You happen to be um, talking to lots and lots of them right at this very moment. I really appreciate <laughs> so what you, you just said. There you go. <laughs> and on that note, uh, Chelsea Peters, go back to your day job. Um, uh, thank you, Joan. Uh, a pleasure. A uh, pleasure to spend time with you. And for everybody listening, thank you as always for the work you do. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.